Hello and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today I'm speaking with Richard Lang. I first heard Richard on Sam Harris's podcast, that was about two years ago, and I listened to that interview several times. Richard just had such a wonderful voice, and I was really intrigued by his reflections on subjectivity, what he calls headlessness, or headless first personhood. You'll hear more about that in today's episode. And then, over the last few months, I spent many hours meditating with Richard's courses. He's a meditation teacher, and I loved his sessions. So pretty quickly, I decided that I had to track him down and ask him to join me for a conversation, and I'm very pleased that he agreed. Richard has some really intriguing ideas about the nature of experience. That's first-person experience, which we can study using the science of the first person, he argues. This is in contrast to third-person science, which is the science that we're all used to hearing about. And all his ideas come with experiments. These are practical ways to test the ideas using your own experience. This episode is a teeny bit interactive. Richard guides us through a few experiments, but they're all very short. I, I do recommend you follow along, but you don't need to stop what you're doing. You can still listen while walking, doing the dishes, sitting on the train. Each of the experiments takes less than a minute, and it's all very easy to follow. And once we're all up to speed with Richard's ideas about subjectivity and headlessness and being a first-person subject, you know, moving through the world, then we can talk about a lot of very intriguing implications for how we view others, for how we view ourselves, politics, sociology, even metaphysics and the nature of being, all the stuff that I'm usually drawn towards, of course. And if you like this conversation, and if you like Richard's voice, I recommend that you go and find his material elsewhere and follow his courses. There are some links in the episode description and at the end of this episode. I really loved this conversation. Richard is a very warm person, as you'll hear, and I hope you enjoy it. And now I bring you Richard Lang. I am delighted to be here today with Richard Lang. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. So I know your voice very well at this point. I've been following your guided meditations using Sam Harris's app, Waking Up. And those sessions have been a source of joy, not only for the content, but also for your voice itself, which is wonderfully calm and peaceful. So I really think your voice is a great gift and I'm excited to share it today with my listeners. It's the drugs I take. <laughs> I'll have what you're having. <laughs> well, I, I'm also just to say I'm grateful to Sam Harris for allowing me, you know, giving me the shop window there to share the headless way. And thank you to you, Jeff, for giving me the opportunity to share something so simple and obvious and wonderful as one's true nature. And I think our listeners will definitely get some value out of this conversation today. If they don't, they can complain to you. <laughs> Jeff's going to have to do a lot of editing. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so the main topic for today is first-person experience. And there are many intriguing puzzles about the way the world appears to me and to us from our first-person perspective. So our experience is inherently private. Only I can see the world from my point of view. Only I am empty space for the world my own experience. And you give the example of walking along a beach and looking at the reflection of the sunset in the water. 
and the sun's reflection points to each of us. There's a perfectly straight line from the setting sun to my position on the sand. So we're all at the centre of our own world. And there's, there's a funny story here. When I was seven, I went to Disneyland in Paris with my parents and my twin brother, Hugh. And I know you actually also happen to have a twin brother because you mentioned that in the past. And while we were at Disneyland, we went to see this 3D cartoon, which was not as common back then. And at the end of the cartoon, there was this huge lion that seems to come jumping out of the screen, roaring, leaping right at you. It was thrilling. And after we left the cinema, we got outside and my brother said, oh, I was so lucky. I had the best seat in the cinema because the lion jumped straight at me. And the, the funny thing is, you know, the lion jumps at everyone or it looks like the lion jumps at everyone. But Hugh thought he only jumped in one direction. He'd just been very lucky to get the right seat. He was still working through this this kind of idea about experience at the age of seven. So I love that story. My family loves telling that story. And it highlights something very simple about subjective experience that, you know, the lion jumps at everyone. We are at the center of experience. Well, that's true. And then the question is, who is it at, at the center of experience? Is it you as a person or you as your true nature, the one? And uh, obviously it's your true nature, because if you look at anybody who's saying that they're at the center, they're obviously not from the outside. That's what you might call the third person, the appearance, who we are for others, who we are in the mirror. That's not at the center. Who is at the center is this headless, faceless one that is looking out of a single eye now and contains the universe. And that is who we all really are. Mm -hmm. So you're introducing us here to The Headless Way, which is a set of reflections and experiments following Douglas Harding's writings and teachings about headlessness, having no head, having no face. It's about the science of the first person as opposed to the science of the third person, which is the empirical science that we're used to. And I think the pointing experiment could be a nice one to start with, so the listeners can really get an idea of what we mean by having no head. Yes, all right, well, I'll guide you through that. And, uh, of course, the listener has actually to do it. Otherwise, it's like having a menu uh, and not having the meal. You know, to have the experience, you need to do the experiment. It, It sounds childish, it sounds a bit silly, You know, if you're listening to this in a cafe, you might feel embarrassed doing this. But, you know, your life depends on this. (laughs) In a way, your eternal soul does depend on it. Anyway, what you do is you um, first direct your attention outwards and then you're going to direct your attention inwards. It's as simple as that. And notice what you actually experience. So in order to facilitate this, this is the embarrassing bit. (laughs) Some people in a workshop refuse to do this. Very rarely now, but anyway, what you do is you take your finger and you point it out at something in front of you. So listener, you're going to actually participate here and you look at what you're pointing out and it has a colour and a shape. It's a thing. So how simple is that? You don't have to like it. You don't have to understand how it was made. You just see a thing. Now point, we'll make it brief this one, you point at your other hand, you see... And there you've got uh, a shape and even movement. It's a thing. You see, you can see it there, an object. Point at your chest. You see, you have to look down and point at your chest. And again, you can see your body there. So there's a thing. So uh, not asking you to understand anything here. Just look. Now raise your finger and point back at where others see your face. And... Uh, I find no face here. 
Just my finger. The finger pointing at nothing. This is the one place in the whole universe where you can point at nothing. Nothing that isn't just nothing, it's also full of everything, including the finger. So you're noticing now, you don't see your face here. You don't see anything here. You're wide open. I suggest I am. And this openness is self-evidently aware. You're aware. And it's full of everything. So there's the first person experience. Headless, faceless, wide open, spacious, uh, and full. Because you can't see the nothing here without seeing something in it. So it's as simple as that. And uh, there are lots of other experiments. Uh, which we might do one or two of, and uh, some with eyes closed, and some that explore uh, the stillness at the heart of movement, and all of that. But really, you, you only need to do one, and you're home and dry. So, I mean, do you find the same, Jeff, when you point there, where I see your head, what do you find? I find nothing. Yeah. Space for the world. Yeah, and we can't disagree about that, because nothing can't be more nothing in you than in me. Now, what you're looking out of is different. That's the view out uh, from anybody else. We've all got a different view. It's a great mystery. This is a mystery of the many and the one. But at centre, we're all the same. And, you know, I have to say, this has huge implications. Uh, in today's world, we, we've got a lot of conflict going. Probably we've always had conflict going. But, you know, if you follow the news, it's the Americans and it's the Chinese and it's the Russians and it's God knows who else, you know, who are the enemy or the friend. And we're all divided up. And uh, that is to be respected. You know, I, I am not glossing over that. But if we become aware that at center we're all the same awareness... And that this space that we're looking out of isn't Russian or English or Irish or American or Chinese. And take that into account. That's not being a fool. It's not denying the differences and, and the need to take action. But it's coming from a, a place of truth and not delusion that at centre we're separate. So you can see immediately this has got huge implications. I love that. And I will get to some of those implications in a short while because there's some more things I want to discuss I'm jumping ahead here. I'm too keen. Let's get the listeners really acquainted with the headless way. Ah. So with the pointing experiment, we're really distinguishing between me as an object and me as a subject. So it does seem kind of crazy to point back at your head and to say that you find nothing, that you find emptiness. But what you're realizing is that what you are for others is a thing, is an object, and you have a head and a body. But what you are for yourself is different. It's a different point of view when you're looking out at the world as opposed to when others are looking at you. Well, we might do the single eye experiment because I think that's also quite a nice one to, to start off with. Okay, yeah, I love the single eye experiment. Okay, so uh, this is absolutely simple. And um, if you, you're aware that for others you have two eyes in a head, you see, and everyone says you're looking out of those Two little peepholes in a, in a thing there at the world, you know, over there. So there's a distance between your eyes and you behind your face somewhere and whatever you're looking at, apparently, you know. So the single eye indicates that this is not the whole story and that you're looking out of one opening. We call it a single eye. It's not even an eye. It's just an opening. And there's no distance. So one rather dramatic way of 
bringing your attention to this. And again, if you're in a cafe, you're going to get thrown out <laughs> if you do this. <laughs> or not. Someone might come up to you and say, hey, I know what you're doing. You're, you're directing your attention to your single eye, aren't you? I must tell you, I'm going to do this, but I'll tell you a funny story because I knew Douglas Harding well. And he said, you know, the thing I would love is if I was traveling in a train or an airplane or something and the person next to me said, said to me, oh, I, you know, you know, we've been chatting a bit. And the person next to me says, oh, by the way, I'd like to share something with you. And Douglas goes, oh, what's that? I said, well, I'd like to share that I'm looking out of a single eye, you see. And Douglas would said, I would just pretend not to know anything about it and just let that person share their single eye. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> you know, so anyway, that came from the cafe. All right, so what you do is very simply you make uh, a pair of glasses with your hands. So you have to put your fingers together and you're like binoculars. So you've got two holes and a dividing line. All right, so you've probably done this as a child. And then you see two holes there with a picture in each hole. That represents your two eyes, you see, looking through two eyes. Now you put them on and you draw them all the way up to your face, make contact, and as you do so, notice what happens to the dividing line. You might try this once or twice. Just check that out. As you bring the, uh, you know, these kind of pretend glasses towards you and put them on, doesn't the dividing line disappear and the two holes become one? And then you can just relax your hands and hold them in front of you and then just bring them past either side of your head and notice they get bigger and disappear into this openness. That's the single eye, that open space. And then you bring them forwards and they come out of nothing. So this is really bringing your attention from, you know, a, a, a foot away, a, two feet away, looking at your hands, bringing them back to the place you're looking out of, which is zero. So your attention moves with your hands to this openness. And this is very beautiful because, I mean, I think it's just beautiful by itself, but you see this openness now. And, you know, the, the previous idea was you're looking out of two little holes uh, in a head and uh, peeking out and you're looking across at things over there that are separate from you. All right, well, you understand that model. But see how different it, your own experience is. My experience is there's, there's no peep, two peepholes here. There's one big peephole one big opening, and there's no distance. I'm not behind a surface here, looking over there at the world. It is given all here in me. In a sense, it's mine. And uh, there's nothing in the way. I'm not separate. Wide open. And you can, the great thing about this, I mean, even more, in a way, accessible than, you know, you don't have to point, you don't have to put your glasses on like that. Now you just notice that it, it's the way you are. So you can notice it anywhere, your single eye. And uh, would you agree, Jeff, that you're looking out of a single eye? You better say yes. <laughs> yeah. And the great <laughs> thing is I wear glasses, so my single eye is always visible. I've got this single beige halo around the edge of my field of vision. Oh, yeah, so do I. I know. I know. I, I remember somebody in a workshop, they kept saying, yeah, but, you know... Where do my glasses, you know, where do, where are they attached to, aren't they? they? They seem to be to this person the proof that they got ahead. Well, actually, when you look for yourself, it's, it's a very different kind of glasses from anyone else that 
You know, you look at, I look at you and all me on the screen, I've got glasses, these two, you know, the frame with the two windows or whatever. And then you look at your own experience, this vast kind of frame, you know, as wide as the world. And the, the, I can just see the arms of the glasses, you know, spreading out to almost infinity and disappearing into the great void here. So it's a, a good reminder, you know, of who you are. And uh, actually, I... Uh, Forgive me, listener, I'm going to use the word God. <laughs> but are you looking out of a two human eyes now or a non-human divine eye? You know, or choose whatever word you like, you know. But it's not a human eye you're looking out of. Now, uh, the great mystic, Meister Eckhart, that you might have heard of, medieval German guy, an incredible guy was aware of this, and he said, the eye by which I see God is the same eye by which God sees me. Well, I mean, use what metaphor, image, name you like, but, you know, take seriously, I, I ask you, your experience now, and live from it. Yeah, and the single eye experiment is very fun. Speaking of harding on the train with the random stranger, I was also at dinner recently with my parents and my girlfriend and my brother and I was talking about this interview coming up and I was doing the pointing experiment and the single eye experiment. So I had them all at the dinner table with their hand binoculars going up to their face. Ah. And I think we were probably too far into the wine at that point for me to explain it all properly. But it can all seem quite wacky when you first come across it. But the realisation is quite simple that it's just what you are from your point of view is different to how you appear to others as an object. So we're talking about these two perspectives. You as an object is a thing for other people and you from your own perspective as being empty space for the world. Well, that's right, you see. And I think that the experience is, is I was going to say second nature, it's first nature. It is the most obvious familiar thing. Uh, it, it was what you were when you were a baby. So in a way, the the... The work of sharing the headless way is partly about sharing the experience, but it's also about making sense of it in terms of our normal way of seeing things. Like you're just saying there, the difference between appearance and reality, third person and first person, and how this makes sense. And I think understandably people are afraid that they are being asked to uh, take on board something that is stupid or doesn't make sense, you know. And I think that one reason for being very cautious about accepting this as true is that we have a deep caution about being conned, you know, that we're going to be taken for a ride and then laughed at and humiliated by society. Oh, look, you know, he doesn't think he's got a head or, you know, is really, you know. That's mad, that's stupid. And I think that, you see, we have all been conned already, in a sense, you could say, into believing we are what we look like at centre, uh, that I am a thing separate from you. And everybody, society is based on that, and that is important to take on board. But, uh, you know, if you grew up proclaiming you'd no head, you'd be laughed at. You have to take on board this understanding of what you are for others. Take responsibility for being that person. I'm Richard, you're Jeff, and all of that. And uh, that is deep in us. So our caution about the truth-reality 
value of our true nature, uh, you know, no, no one's talking about it. No one takes it seriously. It's a childish thing. It's just, oh, you can't see your head. You're in the wrong place. You know, you just can't see it because you're looking out of it. All of that. And the work that Douglas Harding did, especially in his major work, The Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth, which is not a popular book, but it's just a wonderful book. When he found this, I mean, he'd already been aware of how what he was changed with the range of the observer. And then he finally looked for himself at what he was at zero and saw he was headless. And then he realized, wow, I've got a lot of work to do to make sense of this so that it does make sense to science and society. And he achieved the job, actually, yeah. And my listeners will know that I am rigorously empirical. I like to connect my philosophy to the latest science so they don't need to be cautious about being taken for a ride on this podcast, hopefully. And I think we should connect this up with the psychology of development, which is with mainstream science. So I've studied some basic courses in psychology about theory of mind. So this is what children acquire between the ages of three and five. And theory of mind is this great accomplishment of realizing that others have thoughts and feelings that are hidden from me, that there's the inherent privacy of consciousness, which other people experience. So at first, when we're babies, others are just objects and things to us. You know, we are the subject, I'm a subject, and they're just objects that populate my world. And babies don't attribute these private thoughts and feelings to others. They don't attribute different beliefs and knowledge to the ones that they have themselves. And then when we're between the age of three and five, we realize that others are both objects and subjects, and they have these hidden thoughts and feelings. And equally, we realize that I am both an object and a subject. I have my private first-person point of view, but for others, I'm just a thing. So we already treat others with this dualism. That's, that's theory of mind. And we should be able to apply it also to ourselves, which I think that's headlessness. Well, yes. Well, well described. I, I uh, think I'll take your course there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Uh, and uh, uh, you could say there are four main stages of development, personal development. The baby who is headless and, as you say, hasn't yet developed empathy, developed the understanding that, in any depth anyway, that others are feeling and thinking and seeing and have their own life that continues when they walk out the room. You know, as a baby, you're headless. Everything is just given here and now and revolves around you, but not you as a baby. You, you're not there yet. You, you've no idea of what, no developed idea of who you are as a subject. And from day one, those around you reflect back to you who you are in their eyes and it takes a while to begin to understand what's happening and it comes mainly through language and the mirror I suppose and what you learn to do is in a way go out of yourself and place yourself in someone else's head if I can put it like that turn around and look out through their eyes back at yourself and see yourself as they see you now you get to this through language and uh, perhaps through other ways too, you know, and understand that you are a person. And then you have to, as it were, take that information and wear it 
and put your head on and look in the mirror and reach in and get that appearance and pull it out and flip it the other way around because it's facing the wrong way around and enlarge it, put it on and go around as if you're behind a face that you can't see, that everybody else can see. You know, actually, um, well, I'll come to, I'm going to tell you a Zen story, but I'll come to that in a moment. So the child is in the, the second stage of the child that we all went through is you're learning to learning about who you are in society you know your name your gender your family you know what you who you are as a person but as a child you haven't yet got that on in any fixed way really so a lot of the time you're just naturally headless and forgetful of who you are as a person and then you're reminded by your parents or by looking in the mirror or you know all of that and you put it on, and then you forget and put it on. And uh, your ticket for joining in in society is to become a person, is to become what others say you are. Uh, That's that shift. It's empathy, actually, because you're empathizing with how others see you, uh, which is, you know, obviously valuable in a thousand ways. So by the time you're an adult... You are fully convinced that you are what you look like and you are overlooking your headless first personhood in any uh, conscious sense. You deny it. You dismiss it as unreal. You're out there looking back at yourself all the time. Self-consciousness. And there are good things and bad things. You know, it's very good that you are aware of who you are. You, you enables you to achieve things. You take responsibility for being yourself. You understand others are seeing themselves in the same way, all of that. Mm -hmm. But of course, the downside is a sense of separation now because you're this thing and self-consciousness and feeling, you know, afraid of living really because you might upset someone. I don't know. You know, all of that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And what's the solution? Well, obviously, there are lots of solutions on the level of you know, uh, dealing with those issues, you know, through therapy or just taking action, whatever. But what the Headless Way is saying is, well, look, there's a fourth stage here, and it's the stage of the seer, the headless seer, which is simply reawakening to your point of view and taking it seriously. It's like coming home to what it's like to be you without denying what you are for others. It's both. That's the the difference from the baby, the baby is just headless and you're not yet aware of who you are as a person. But as you grow up, you take on being aware of being a person, forget your true nature. Then in the fourth stage, you reawaken to your true nature. You look your single eye, you point back, you see, am I face to face or face to no face with others? So this is, you know, without the fourth stage, you're missing out on what the whole thing was leading to in a way. And uh, the fourth stage isn't a fixed thing. It's an opening into a new life of living from your true nature whilst being aware of being a person in the world and all of that. Yeah. So the Zen story I was going to tell you about, which mm. I heard, the Zen koan actually recently, if you know what a koan is, it's a sort of riddle. And if you can solve the, the riddle, then you'll be enlightened, you know, rather. Right, you ready? <laughs> so, I mean, actually, one of the riddles is uh, what does your face look like, the face you had before your parents were born, your original face? 
Well, the face you can see in the mirror is your acquired face. The one that you've just pointed at, your no face, is your original face. But the koan is this. Bodhidharma was a, a guy who, I don't know, in the 6th century or something, brought Buddhism from India to China. And uh, he had a beard, right? And um, the koan, the riddle is, why doesn't Bodhidharma have a beard? So anyone asking this would say, well, I mean, that's nonsense. He has a beard. What, what does that mean, you see? Well, this is pointing to the fact that for Bodhidharma himself, he didn't have a beard. He didn't have a head. That's the <laughs> first person and third person. So if you imagine your Bodhidharma, you know, and someone says, you know, oh, why doesn't Bodhidharma have a beard? Or, Well, you can see that for you, you don't. You're this beardless wonder, headless wonder, empty for the world. That's enlightenment, you know. It's a big name for this ordinary first-person experience. But you've got to take it seriously and live from it, you know. That's the thing. But, you know, at the same time, you're aware that for everyone else, you're Bodhidharma with a beard, or I'm Richard with a beard. And, you know, now this is wonderful. It's like you're... You are the one in disguise, in a way. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So I think we've given the listeners a great introduction to the main principles of the Headless Way. Yes, and I'm going to jump in and just affirm to the listener that you can't get it wrong. You can't half see your no face. You can't see it a bit blurry or a bit cloudy. You know, if you point back now, and you're going to see it now, you know, if you point back now at the place you're looking out of, it's empty for whatever's going on. And that's the same for Jeff and me and everyone in the, the world. And so there's no hierarchy of seers. It, and it is down to earth. You've got to live it, though. All right. That was my, um, you know, kind of conditions apply. <laughs> <laughs> and I love your related reflections on creativity in the Headless Way course. So once we observe this aware emptiness, this space that we are for the world, and then we think about creativity, we realize that these things just flow and come out of the void. And for many years, I've been fascinated by this kind of state of flow. When you're creating something, words or music or brush strokes, these things just appear out of nothingness, almost. Almost, almost, they do. They do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you say that creativity means that you don't know what's going to happen, at least in not great detail. And in one of the experiments you talk about observing how decisions and actions just come out of the void. And equally, when we're having a conversation with someone, my words just come out of the nothingness. You know, there's not much thought and planning about specific phrasing. Something just comes out of nothing. And that's happening right now, I suppose. Words are coming out of the void. And I've prepared a bit more than the usual conversation, the roadmap of topics, but I'm witnessing the examples and phrasing coming out of the nothingness. And this is one of your insights about creativity, that even being is just being creative, that we're creating at every moment, speaking, moving, acting. We're witnessing these things coming out of nothing. This amusing example you give of like being on stage with no idea of what line is coming next. And that's what life can feel like sometimes. It's strange. Well, yes, you know, uh, I... Uh I just downloaded a copy, an audiobook of War and Peace. I read it many years ago, and I've forgotten it, but I, it did impress me. It was the best novel I'd ever read. And uh, I was talking ages ago to my brother about it, and he said, yeah, one of the things about the characters 
is you have this feeling that they don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, I am completely uh, with you with this, that I don't know for sure. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth, or rather my no-mouth, out of the silence here. Because when I'm talking, I don't see my mouth. I see it on the screen there, but I don't see it here. Where is my voice coming from? Out of the great mystery. And uh, this is just the way it is. And uh, this is exciting and true. And it doesn't divide creativity off into something special that you do. A painting, now I'm going to be creative or going to write a poem. Every moment, this emptiness here is creating something. And it just can't stop. And it's always different, always new. Even if you said the same word ten times, it would sound different, you know, and it would have a different tone, the first and the last. And the other thing is, I mean, this is just so uh, exciting, actually, that this moment now is coming out of nowhere, out of the void. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of understanding it. You can think of it in other terms. It's just appearing, you know. It's nothing to do with you because there's no one here. But the other way is it's pouring out the source here. And then in a conversation, you know, if you begin to listen, your voice and my voice are both coming out of the one silence. And uh, so uh, the listener now hearing my voice, it's happening in your awareness, in that boundless silence there. Now you could say it's coming out of that and disappearing back into it. So... At the level of you being a person, this isn't your voice. This is Rich's voice. But at the level of who you really are, this is your voice. Everyone's voice is yours. The bird song in the garden is, is your song. Uh, th this is refreshing. Uh, this is rich and wealthy. And it's not just hearing. You look at something. You, you say, well, that is appearing in the emptiness here. Well, it's coming out of the emptiness. And... Uh, I think we, we, we know this somewhere in our hearts. You know, if, if you have a, can't remember something or you have a problem and you can't solve it, well, one way to deal with that is sleep on it or just wait and give up. And then it comes out, hopefully, you know. Well, where does it come from? Yes, it comes out of this incredibly, infinitely creative, inventive mystery that you are. Yeah. It's amazing, yeah. It's a mystery. I mean, creativity is particularly interesting to me. I depend on creativity for lots of my most important projects, like writing philosophy, podcasting, writing music, and of course, walking and talking and acting in the world. They're also creative acts. But I loved your reflection on the question, so what? So towards the end of the, the Headless Way course, you talk about the implications of headlessness, and you say, you know, these are some of my reflections on the question, so what? Ask me again in a couple of days, and I'm sure I'll come up with different responses. Different responses will arise from the emptiness, from yeah. this space. And this struck me as just a brilliant insight that there's no definitive me. There's no definitive responses. Different things arise in the space that's me. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I just started writing a book, my first book. And in the past few weeks, I've started writing the first few chapters. And when I sit down to write, I get into the state of flow. And that's a great thing. And these examples and expressions and turns of phrase just flow out of the emptiness. And of course, you know, I have a detailed plan. I have an outline of chapters. I have an outline of the subtopics in each chapter. But the particular way that I express these ideas, the way that I you know, arrange and explain them, 
that's not predecided. So one day I finished writing, I looked at my examples and sequence of ideas that I'd just written, and I thought they were just rather arbitrary. I mean, they just flowed into my mind on a particular day, and it seemed like there were so many other ways I could have explained it, other examples I could have used, other phrases I could have used. And that's the point. You know, it is arbitrary. There are so many other ways that I could have explained it. And I realised that there's no definitive book. I can't chase some definitive way of explaining these things. So I'm going to sit down over the course of the next few months, and I'm going to write one book, one of the, the many, many books that I could have written, and I'm only going to write one of the possible books. So it was a bit of a revelation for me to embrace this idea that there are many possible books that can flow out of me. But sadly, I'm only going to see and write one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, my brother wrote a book called Is a Text a Human Being? That's David Lang, my brother. And his point was that when you read a book, you have your interpretation of the book and the images and feelings that arise as you read it. And that is part of the experience of reading a book. You could say that's part of the book. So every time you read the same book, it's a different book. So that's creative. When anyone else reads it, it's a different book. So, yes, it is... Uh, th this frees you, doesn't it? it you, you don't have to somehow pin it all down. You see what comes out. And even your detailed outline, which you're following, that came out the void, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And uh, people say, oh, I'm not creative. Well, this is saying, yes, you are. And uh, I think the, the art of creativity is seeing that you're being creative already. You know? You're just sort of making it up as you go along. <laughs> okay, so let's dive into some of the philosophical implications of headlessness. I'm saving kind of the, the deeper metaphysical issues for Ooh. this segment of the conversation. And I'd like to start by talking about perspectives. So we've been talking already about how we have these two sides to ourselves. You know, for others, we're a person. For ourselves, we're space for the world. And the challenge that you give to become a headless seer is to accept both realities, accepting both perspectives. And you talked about the final stage of being a headless seer. And it's not about giving up our identity in society as, as a person or as an object. We have to kind of accept this, this dual aspect. So it's the insight that, a kind of metaphysical insight that in the world, there are these many perspectives and that the world as it appears from one perspective is not the way it appears from other perspectives. And we have to kind of learn to live with these dualisms and to get our heads around these, these many perspectives. Yes, well, I agree there. And uh, yes, what you are for yourself and what you are for others. And the idea that Awakening to your true nature means that you're no longer aware of your human identity or you no longer have problems, you know, and difficulties and challenges just seems to me to be not the case. My experience is that awakening to my true nature goes along with the challenges of life and the, the deep, deep, deep feeling of being a person. When you're a baby, you're the void, you're the emptiness here without an idea of self and other any, in any developed sense. And throughout your life, you remain as this space. Even when you're not aware of it, you are this space. So what happens is that during your life, this 
awareness of self and other emerges in the space. It doesn't stop you being who you really are, the space. It is an add-on, an accessory, you know. And uh, that is pure creativity, I would say. That's not something going wrong. Uh, it feels like it in the third stage of the adult when you don't know about your true nature, when you are only thinking of yourself as the one in the mirror. And, uh, you know, quite a lot of people get along all right with just that because you already are the space. And you only have to let down your guard a bit and you're naturally being the space. You know, that laughter and carefreeness and love, really, I would say, all come from this instinctive sense that you're not separate and that you're free. But, as I say, I think that this development of separateness, when seen from your true nature, uh, although still painful at times, really, you know, and difficult, uh, it is uh, seen as emerging within your true nature and it doesn't take you away from home. It doesn't have to take you away from home. So both, yeah, both go together. Yes, yeah, so you're talking more about separateness, which you mentioned near the start of the conversation. And we could talk a bit about projection and reflection. So there's the, the idea you talk about that things are both there from here or here from there. So when my friend registers my face, he's registering it over there but it's reflected back at here. And Harding writes a lot about this elsewhereness and the law of elsewheres, that everything is either there from here, as in projected, or here from there, reflected. So it sounds a bit wacky, but you give the example of the sky being blue. So the sky is not blue over there, it's blue in you. So there's something about our retinas, our consciousness, our empty awareness that enables us to register the sky as being blue. And I would qualify that because I, I do want to, I want to defend both the subjective and the objective frames of reference points of view. So I would qualify it by saying that the sky is both blue in and of itself over there. And it's also blue, you know, in our perceptual experience. So we, we are responding to some kind of real regularity in the color of the sky. There's a wavelength of light. These wavelengths are scattered more, the shorter blue ones are scattered more by the air molecules. So that is the objective view of what's happening. And then we also need the right apparatus from, from here to perceive and register the property of blue. So maybe you'd like to say a bit more about this projection and reflection because it's, it's quite a trippy idea. <laughs> yes, I can. This is from Douglas Harding's book, The Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth. And uh, there is both a short version and a long version. The long version is wonderful. Uh, that was the original book, and then he condensed it because it was too big to publish at the time, but it's published now. And he asked the question, who am I? And you have to be prepared just to be open-minded, you see, and observe things as they are given rather than as you've been told. So in answer to the question, who am I, I'll just take you briefly through some the these ideas you referred to, projection and reflection. Mm-hmm. First of all, he says, well, I'm a person. Common sense says I'm a person. See, and I think that's brilliant. He starts with that because that's the normal view of who you are. I said, but wait a minute. Uh, common sense isn't over here where I am. Common sense is over there telling me what I am from there. What am I for me? He looks down, he sees there's a headless body with the world on his shoulders. All right, you can't see your head. Instead, you see the world. And then he said, but wait a minute. Uh, if I look out in a mirror, I find my head. 
So you've got a head, but it's not on your shoulders, not to your centre. It's out there in the mirror and in reflecting surfaces. So there's a region around you where your head appears, because if someone looks at you from three feet, they'll see your head. But if they move up to you, it disappears, they get a patch of skin, and move away from you, you shrink to a dot. So there's this sort of donut-like belt around you where you appear human. Mm. that's the first bit that's your first person experience seeing your appearance there now as your friend when your friend enters the room they can see your head out there if they stay at that region if they come closer they can't see it so they register your head out there and of course if your friend is registering your head out there seeing you as a person well they're in the place where your face appears and you're in the place where their face appears you're at an equal distance. So I'm looking at you, Jeff, and I'm over here seeing your face here, and you're over there seeing my face there. And that is reflection. So reflection is like registering an image in a mirror. It's flat. It's over there in the mirror. So I register your face here. Or if I was looking at the listener, I would say, I register your face here. But I don't keep it. What I do, if I point at your face, I don't point at me. I point at you. I say, your face is really actually over there. And I point at your centre, your emptiness, you see. And that's called projection. I reflect it here and I project it there. Because it is both given here, yet I see it as over there. And you do the same for me. You see my face there, you re reflect it there, and you project it here. And this is, as you say, the, connected with the law of elsewhereness. And uh, nothing is in just one place. And this is how it's given. And so I look at the blue sky and I say, the blue sky is here. You know, and it's not over there. If I went up to the blue sky, it wouldn't be blue. It wouldn't, you know, the molecules would be atoms, would eventually be nothing. The blue sky comes to me and other observers to be blue, but I don't keep it. I project it back on the blue sky. And uh, this is kind of Alice in Wonderland world, isn't it? You know, the Alice wanted to meet the, the queen, Red Queen, and she went up to the Red Queen and the Red Queen disappeared. And she had to come away from the Red Queen to find her again. She had to move away to find her. Well, to find you, I've got to keep my distance. And if I go up to you, I lose you. So this is, uh, this starts the hierarchy, that book, and goes on from there. Because obviously if I'm viewed from further, much further away from the moon, I appear as the planet Earth, mm -hmm. you see. I really do. Because once you see at centre, you're nothing. You're not, I'm not Richard at centre, I'm Richard out there. And then I'm a planet further away and I'm a star further away. Or I identify with my country, you know, which is what I look like from bit closer or all of that you know uh, so this is uh, the hierarchy is the many leveled system of appearances which emanate from this empty center where you are yeah so just uh, I mean I've tried to get these ideas out for years and years and I occasionally send the book out and the model we've got a model and you know most people academic philosophers in particular just don't take it on board. I mean, one, it's you've got to take on board a new vision of the universe. And two, it sort of upsets their nice little 
history of philosophy because there's this guy in the 20th century who came up with this new vision of the universe, which isn't uh, half-baked. It's, uh, that book is, you know, took him 10 years to write. This is a view of our place in the universe as, you know, as huge as Copernicus or, you know, th this is major, major formulation of the way we are. And I think that, you know, if you think, oh, dismiss headlessness is kind of silly, well, it has backing. It is gold standard. Uh, it's just way ahead of its time. But it's, it's fully in line with relativity, you see. And most philosophers are not. You know, relativity is what uh, this idea that things depend on the range of the observer. You know, it's, it's, that's taking it seriously and applying it to yourself. So what I am is dependent on the range of the observer. Well, most philosophers say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, but I'm a person. Let's start from the idea of I'm a person. But you're not at centre. And I think we can connect it to the academic and the empirical. So let's get there in a moment, because I, I do, I see quite robust links with this work and other work in mainstream academic philosophy. So I'd like to make those links. But just to go back slightly to the projection and reflection, from this idea that at centre we're nothing and that we're engaged in this mutual imminence of projection and reflection with other people who are registering us and we're reflecting things back. One of the most important insights that struck me from this account is that people rise to meet our expectations. People meet our projections because there's nothing at their centre that enables them to ward off our projections Yes, because they're open to the world. And Rutger Bregman has a great book called Humankind. He talks about several empirical studies which support this hypothesis. So there, there's one experiment with uh, rats in a lab. So they gave two separate groups of researchers two separate groups of rats who were both, the rats were all the same, by the way, but they told one group, these rats are exceptional. They're going to run faster, jump higher. They're going to do amazing things. And then they told the other group, well, these are just normal rats. So, you know, don't expect too much of them. And the researchers who expected more, the rats actually performed better. So the rats rose to meet expectations. And there are also studies with human beings. There are open prisons in Scandinavia that Rutger Bregman talks about. So the conclusion is that treating people like criminals in a prison, that's a projection, means they'll behave like criminals. Whereas treating people like responsible citizens, again, that's a projection, means that they're going to behave like responsible citizens. So I think this is another profound insight. It's from philosophy, from sociology, about subjectivity and objectivity, about identity, about how people are fluent and reactive and context dependent. And I think it really is a major implication of, of Harding's work and your work that that if we're nothing at centre, if we're empty space for the world, then we're malleable, we're susceptible to other people's projections. Oh yes, we are. That's very profound. And uh, when you see that this is true, that others are what you make of them and what everyone else makes of them, but this is a deep responsibility to how you respond to others and how you treat others. There's many ways of looking at this. There's that, that what others are is, is they come to you to reveal themselves and you project that back on them. And they, you are what everyone is making of you because you've no information on your own about what you are as a person. Mm -hmm. You're dependent on others. So this is a great responsibility, really. And also, along with this, is when you're seeing who you are, you see that you're face to no face. 
that the other person is in you is you. Uh, so it must change slowly in your heart how you see others, that they are yourself. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a profound thing. And the day when each of us uh, begins to really take that on board and, the, and the, the day when our leaders, you know, when they, the, if you're American and the other is Chinese, well, you know, uh, be careful how you paint the picture and how you talk about them. And it's not being stupid. It's not being there for, oh, I'm going to deny all this stuff about you. That it's realistic, you know, that this, this is how I see you. But there, it's a very different thing from seeing yourself as separate from another and seeing that the other is in you and you're in them. This is, this is a very deep change. And uh, people have known about this for thousands of years, of course, but this is a new way of coming to it, directly seeing it, you see. Yeah. The other thing just about projection is it is usually used as a psychological thing, that uh, I project my feelings onto you or my you know, preconceptions onto you. Well, Douglas Harding is saying, well, actually, you project everything on them. You project... The content of your awareness isn't just what you think and feel. It's it's everything. And now I project uh, everything from here, you and the sky, and it's all me. It's all, you know, my responsibility, my own projection, as well as in a mysterious way not being me, you know. It is somehow mysteriously other as the, the paradox, yeah. But no, that's a great insight, Jeff. Uh, and uh, this is where, you know, to see you're headless, you say, oh, well, that's, that's simple. What, what is there to that? You know, what's that, how is that going to affect my life? Well, here, here's one of the ways in which, you know, it'll never stop affecting your life and never stop challenging you to grow, yeah. And I think that really should shape human policy and behavior and attitudes and to how we view other people, that, that insight. And let's make that connection to academic philosophy that I, I was talking about. So I'm not sure if you've heard of Janan Ismail or if Ismail has ever read Douglas Harding's work, but she's one of my past guests uh-huh. and she's written a lot about the nature of perspective. And I think... It's very important work. Uh, She talks a lot in terms of frames of reference. Mm. So she talks about the frame independent perspective versus the frame dependent perspective. So the frame independent perspective is outside of any frame, this shared objective, it's modern physics. And then there's the frame dependent perspectives of a person, agent, a system. It's the subjective and the private. And one of her best examples, I think, is about the experience of time. So there's this puzzle about time because time appears to flow. In my own subjective private experience, time flows from one moment to the next. There's this constant conveyor belt of moments. But from the perspective of empirical science, time is static. Time is just a spatial dimension. You know, there's there's no now in time any more than there's a here in space. And time doesn't flow any more than space flows. And so Ismail's insight is to recognize that these are both equally real. They just exist in different frames of reference. So there's the experience of flowing time in the frame dependent, subjective point of view. And then there's the nature of time as static in the frame independent um, point of view. So there are certain experiences in the world, in the physical world, it's completely in keeping with empirical science, 
certain experiences can only be accessed within the frame of a particular system like us. And that's perfectly in keeping with what we know about empirical science and the physical world. So I think your work also, and of course Harding's work, also talks about these different frames of reference. And, you know, we can, the science of the first person, the frame dependent perspective, can coexist with the the empirical third person perspective. They're not in conflict. They're just realities phrased in terms of different frames of reference. So there's one contemporary academic link. <laughs> yeah, so I think there are many different ways of looking at this subject. And uh, the way that I frame it is I'm looking into time from the timeless. When I point back at the place I'm looking out of, there's nothing here. There's nothing moving, nothing changing. And uh, where there's time, there's change. Where there's no change, there's no time. And I'm looking out into Tuesday at 12 o'clock midday, roughly, from not from Tuesday, 12 o'clock, but from this place that is neither morning nor afternoon nor night. And so I look from the timeless into time. That's the first person experience. And actually, I mean, the, in the hierarchy of heaven and earth, Douglas goes into time. Uh, now there's too much there to go into. But when you look into the universe, the further you look, the further back you look, right? You know, so I look at you and you're a fraction of a second out of date, old, you know. But where you are, you are timeless. So you, it takes time for your appearance to arrive over here in my centre. But if I look at a star, it takes even longer for that appearance to arrive, you know, from that nothingness there to this nothingness here, as it were. So, you know, it, I'm looking back into the past. And, uh, yeah, so I think there are different ways of looking at this. But um, right at centre, there's no time. Uh, but, you know... You need time. If you were just at the centre where nothing was happening and that's all there was, that'd be boring, wouldn't it? <laughs> but you've got time as well, which is appearing in you, all that change going on, so it's interesting. But if you were just aware of the change, that, that would really be a recipe for restlessness and tiredness and, you know, you, oh, I need to get off this, I need a bit of stillness. Well, you jump into the centre, so you have both the timeless and the time, and uh, that's the perfect recipe, really, yeah. So this is getting quite complex, but I think you and Ismail actually have almost backwards, opposite conceptions, just the way you're framing things, because Ismail talks about the time described by physics out there as being static, and the time that we experience from here being flowing, because we're moving through the world, we have memories and we have plans, and this is what puts us on the conveyor belt of time moving. Whereas your conception is kind of flipped because from here, I'm, I'm still, I'm empty. There is no change in me. And it's only out there that there's change in time and passage. So this is getting quite complex for us and for the listeners, but there are many ways of framing this idea of time and change. And yeah, it seems like you've you've gone for the, the, opposite, the opposite framing. Yes, and... Uh... This is also, in my view, directly available to experience. Uh, you, you look at your watch and you see what time it is, and then you notice the place you're looking out of has no, 
you know, you see the watch face there, but you see no face here, no, no place here uh, th that is changing. That you know, so uh, to me, that is directly available. Uh, even if the the person is looking at you from outside and seeing you in time, they're looking themselves from the timeless. You can't get away from the timeless, which is always full of time. But uh, there are different ways of looking at this. And Douglas Harding, in his book, The Hierarchy, has three main ways of understanding time. And it is, uh, uh, you know, probably too much to go into now, but this is a different way of understanding the world in, and uh, including space and time. Yes. And let's dive into the the questions that most excited me. So the reason I reached out initially for this conversation was I had a bit of an epiphany as I was listening to The Headless Way, an epiphany that changed my conception of metaphysics, like my deepest attitudes about the structure of reality and my, my philosophical views. And it was quite a simple statement that who you are depends on distance. So I'll give you the backdrop to how I was thinking before that. So I've had these these deep questions about what reality is really like and you know does the world persist outside of my perspective is the world the same for all subjects or does somehow the way i look at the world affect us does does who is looking at the world affect the way the world is and i've been quite a staunch realist i've been the one to defend the persistence of the mind independent world as we say and i would say things like you know the world just is a certain way it doesn't matter who is looking at it you know it is persistent there are regularities and invariances. And then I was listening to The Headless Way and, you know, it got to me in a way that a 30-page academic paper couldn't have got to me because it was just a simple, a simple phrase. Who you are depends on distance. So at a distance of two metres, you know, you're a person, an organism. At a distance of two micrometres, zooming right in, but you're, you're just, you're nothing but cells. And then zooming in further, you become atoms, subatomic particles, then mostly empty space. And then you can zoom all the way back and at a distance of two kilometers, you're a mountain. And then at a distance of two million kilometers, you're a planet. And so reality isn't changing, but what's happening is physics depends on the range of view of the observer. So it doesn't, so the, the underlying reality itself isn't shifting in any way, but depending who is looking and at what distance you're looking, reality appears very different. So I had this insight that there are many, many ways of carving the world, depending on the observer. And because there's no correct range of view, there's no correct observation or range of observation, there's no one true carving of the world. Again, I'm dealing with these dualisms because there's both the persistence of the world, but there's also these many ways of subjectively carving up the world. And here we are again with our two frames of reference, the objective and the subjective. <laughs> Well, I'll comment on that, but uh, first I am reminded of an experience I had when I was giving a workshop with Douglas Harding. I mean, many years ago, I was very young and just was there, you know, helping him. And it was just before the workshop started, we were on a kind of stage looking out. It was in the East End of London looking out. It was a Christian group but looking out of all, all these people. And Douglas said to me, you know, it, it's a strange thing, you know you're going to disturb people you're going to upset people and uh, you know good thing really but you know some people don't like it but you got disturbed 
you got you got upset in, in a up. good yeah in a good direction you see and i don't know what makes this appeal to some and not to others that's a mystery if you uh, accept everyone is nothing like you are uh, and you zoom away from them then you come to where they appear as an atom and then a molecule a cell and then as a person and then as a, a, a town, perhaps, and a country and a planet. Now, the strange thing is, if, if you zoom away from the nothing, one uh, track reveals, at a certain point, the cells, which are all the same in us, suddenly appears as Richard. Whereas if it's zooming away from your center, it appears as Jeffrey. Now, why should the nothingness appear as Richard from here and as Jeffrey from there when it's the same, when it has no characteristics at all. And then you proceed further away and we both merge in the planet. And this isn't an explanation really of how individuality arises. It's an observation of it. But isn't that wonderful? That there's a, <laughs> there's a unique track out from the nothing it's pretty much the same in atoms and molecules, you know, and then it suddenly emerges as a stone, you know, or as a tree, or as Jeffrey, you see, uh, and then merges into the planet, you know, where it, so there's a middle region where I, and at the very nearest part, you know, we fade out, and the furthest away, we, we presumably fade out, and in the middle is all this beautiful kind of. Uh, individuality, especially in this particular region where we're different. It's an, inc it's an incredible... Now that, you can't deny that. You know, science, zoom away and you see this. You know, this is observable. But, you know, you can't... That is just incredible creativity. I mean, you couldn't dream that up, <laughs> except you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such mind-melting stuff. These are the most incredibly interesting issues about the metaphysics of identity, what makes us who we are, and again, how how we come to be in this physical world. This is the perspectives, how how there can be a subjectivity that exists with all this physical stuff. And I really think that Janan Ismail's work aligns with a lot of these topics. She has a book, How Physics Makes Us Free, and she talks about all these issues about the self and free will and identity. And she talks about zooming into particles and zooming out to galaxies. And it's only in the middle distance that we are persons, that we have a self, that we have free will. These are emergent properties. And she wants to reconcile, reconcile this with, with empirical physics. So yes, we accept that at the smallest scales, we're just particles. So if we want to talk about people and identities and selves, we have to be at the right, uh, the right measure, the right register. Yes, that's right. And uh, there are different qualities emerge as you zoom away. You know, right down at the level of the particle, uh, you don't know where anything is. It's just complete random. It, but that isn't the same at the human level. You can predict where a person is going. You know, I'm going to raise my hand. There you are. Uh, I, I've raised it. So there are different qualities emerge as, as you uh, zoom away. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll enter the last segment. And... I'd like to wrap up with some more critical reflections about The Headless Way because I'd love to hear what you have to say about these ideas. You can tell that I'm, of course, very excited about The Headless Way and I, I want to 
unpack all the things it has to offer. But I have a few more reflections. You're going to play devil's advocate now. Well, you know, making points that I might necessarily make myself, but somebody else might make or, you know, no, but some reflections that I had when I was following the course. So the first one is about this idea of kind of conceptual reframing. So is the headless way just a conceptual reframing of experience? Are we just using concepts like headless and timeless to reframe how we're seeing experience? And like, you know, reflections about the space of consciousness, you say things like, I see no marks of age or I see no change in this space, so it's timeless. So is this seeing who we really are or is it just one of many conceptual framings that we can have of experience? And can we can we access the experience of being headless or of being the aware emptiness without these concepts? Well, essentially, it's nonverbal. And uh, so you are it. It's not a matter of whether you can access it or not with or without concepts. You just are it. I accept that. I understand that language is necessary to communicate about it. And so far, our language has mainly been framed around self and other. And so, yes, this is a new language. It's a new reframing, if you like, of our experience, uh, which is necessary. We need to reframe it, uh, to bring it onto the front burner. But the experience itself is nonverbal, and that means there isn't exactly a right way of talking about it. You know, find, choose your own poison. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. And I was thinking more about language and metaphor and culture. I wonder how you might go about following the Headless Way course, you know, with a different language, a completely different culture. I don't know if you ever experimented with giving the course in a very different place on earth or through a very different language. And has it been a success as well? Yeah, I've given workshops in Russia, you know, for example, and uh, I've got good friends there. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it's not dependent on, you know, a culture. I don't know what it's dependent on in terms of someone saying yes to it. it it's a, something very mysterious, the one saying yes to the one, uh, or the one saying, no, I'm not ready to be aware of myself, you know. And uh, I, I don't think a different culture is... is any barrier at all. This is so deep in everyone, deeper than language and culture. Uh, and uh, people will express it differently. That's interesting, you know. Uh, so, uh, no, I found no, no barriers like that. Uh, it's not at that level, no. And getting further away from culture, this is getting quite speculative, but I would see animals as being conscious to various degrees. So I'm really just speculating here, but I wonder if any animals that are close to us in our evolutionary tree, like chimpanzees or bonobos, if they might have some, you know, comparable experience of emptiness or this kind of creativity, maybe they have it to some degree. And we can't know because, you know, our communication isn't that easy. Uh, and per perhaps it wouldn't be as developed but I can maybe imagine it existing to a certain degree in other, other animals. Well, yes, why not? I mean, uh, for a start, everybody, every animal, every insect is looking out the nothing. You have a tiny little fly on your desk. For itself, it's not tiny. It is the single eye full of the, the world. 
this is true for every being, uh, you know, at the very least, every being. And so the chimpanzee, the, the dog, the cat, the bird is looking out of the same nothingness that you are looking out of. Now, uh, just as we've got a sense of self as well, and you need that to protect yourself, so the bird is on the lookout all the time for a predator or the uh, mouse, you know, uh, is very aware of itself as, a, in some way as an individual. But it is both. Uh, and the cat sitting there uh, just, you know, kind of just sitting there is, is just being the space. Now what, you know, whether it's thinking, hmm, I'm looking out into time from the timeless. I, I, <laughs> I don't think it's got those words, but it is doing. You know, it's looking out into the, the world of form from the formless. And uh, to quibble about whether it's conscious of it or not, I, I think, you know, is, is quibbling, really. It is that, you know. And this, when you see who you are, you see who everyone is, and that, that engenders deep respect and understanding. This is the deeper kind of empathy. Empathy, at one level, is me... Uh, having a sense of what you're thinking and feeling. But you can go deeper and you can empathize with where those thoughts and feelings are happening in that other person. So I'm empathizing with you, Jeff, now, and in fact with all our listeners. And I'm saying what to the listeners, well, uh, you know, maybe you're feeling a bit confused or maybe you are enthusiastic about what we're talking about. You know, maybe you're thinking about dinner, you know, all these things. And I can't be, uh, uh, know this. I'm just, I'm speculating, but that's what we do all the time, you know. But I can be sure of who is thinking and speculating and feeling that right where you are, you are this openness. Now, I have suddenly put myself completely in your position along with the mystery of not knowing exactly at all what you're thinking and feeling, your view out, I have to ask you about that or read your appearance, you know, to get a sense. But now I am absolutely sure, not a doubt in my mind, you know, there's no division at all at centre between Jeff and me and the, and the listener. There's this just, now that makes, uh, that's empathy, that is uniting with great respect without crossing, you know, boundaries inappropriately, as it were. Mm-hmm. And the last point I might make is about vision. So I've studied a lot of philosophy of perception, especially in the last year, quite intensely. And some philosophers of perception criticise how vision dominates in studies about perception. Because we have many sense modalities, hearing and smell, and proprioception, which is sensing things within the body. And I think it's fair to say the headless way does focus on vision in a lot of the experiments, like the single eye and pointing and, you know, experiments about traveling. You know, think about when you travel, the world comes to me. It disappears into my single eye. And if I'm sitting backwards on the train, the world appears out of my single eye. And you do, of course, talk about taste and smell and touch in some experiments. But I think they're still framed in terms of vision. So when I raise a glass to my lips, I can no longer see the glass because it disappears into my single eye. But from other modalities, I can feel the glass against my lips. I can feel the swallowing. I can feel that that's proprioception. So I'm wondering how you think about the dominance of vision in these, in these teachings 
could you guide the reflections equally well using the other sense modalities? And, you know, do the conclusions still still hold as, as strongly? Well, they do, yes. And uh, obviously one uses vision because it's the dominant sense. And the easiest way to communicate about one's true nature. But uh, it's great fun to explore the other senses. So, for example, if you close your eyes, if the listener close your eyes, you just made the world disappear. You see, now open your eyes, you make it reappear. Now, you, if you were to see Richard doing that, nothing happens. That's the third person. But the first person, you have this power of making the world disappear. So if you do that now, you close your eyes and you've just got a kind of darkness... Uh, will come to the other senses, but the darkness is given there in this boundless openness at no distance, in my experience, you see. And uh, consciousness is just single on present heavens. Now you become aware of your body sensations. Uh, now on present evidence, uh, how big is that field of sensation? You see, how wide is it? Well, you don't have anything to compare it with. In my experience, I can't say how big I am. You see, if I go by my sensations, and if I go to my right foot, well, I have a memory of my right foot, and it's, you know, so far away and a certain shape, and that's very useful. But, you know, if you'd just been born, you wouldn't have that idea of a foot there. Well, just go with that. Pay attention to your sen the sensation you call your foot. That just is a kind of a cloud of energy floating at no distance, isn't it? Or... Your back, I mean, you call it your back, but how long is that sensation and where is it given? And then you go to the whole field of sensation uh, and you say, well, you know, I've just been born to help me pay attention without my knowledge and imagination. How big am I? And uh, where am I? And how old am I? You see, so... Uh, this is almost more obvious with your eyes closed. What eyes, you see, in this spaciousness in which, for example, the sounds are happening, coming and going in the, in the silence. And then you go to your thoughts and feelings. Say, well, my thoughts and feelings are in my head. Well, on present evidence, I think of a number. Where is that coming out of? Like we were saying before, it just comes out of nowhere, no mind, and disappears, you see, or... All your mental chatter, is it contained inside something? Or is it just appearing like the sounds are appearing in the great emptiness, you see? And uh, disappearing again. And uh, if you pay attention, if you're sitting down to the sensation of sitting on your chair, well, you've got your idea of your body on the chair, there's a separation there two things, but on present evidence, isn't it just, where do you stop and the chair begin? You know, what chair? Isn't it just a sensation given in awareness? And if you just be aware of your whole body and the sensation of your body and the weight of it, the weight of it, now, to me, that weight is given in the weightlessness of consciousness. It's just floating there. Very relaxing, you see. It's just uh, the whole weight of your, what you call your body, the weight of everything, everything floating in consciousness. And then when you open your eyes again, you see, then the world appears in the nothingness, and you've got your body sensations, 
you understand the body, you know, that's my back and that's my foot. But at the same time, the first person experience is this whole field of sensation floating in the nothing, mm-hmm. you see, and uh, flo- you're supported by awareness. It's just everything, sounds, feelings, sensations, colors, are floating in awareness and can't sink. <laughs> I just... Floating in awareness. So there you see, I mean, there's lots of experiments with eyes closed and movement, you know, non, with, with lots of experiences with, without, depending on vision, which are great fun and freeing in their own way, yeah. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time today. I've loved breezing through all my favourite topics about perspectives and experience and our relationship with the world which i think is the thing that i always come back to in a lot of my philosophical inquiries well can i jump in and just share one other thing go ahead please. and this uh, this may be too complicated for the listener but it's worth a shot mm-hmm. and it comes out the hierarchy because you mentioned perception mm-hmm. and the normal idea of perception is light bounces off an object and enters the eye and goes along and enters you know to the right part of the brain and then you see you see, well, no, no one's ever discovered an image in the brain for a start, you know, and how can you be sure that what you do see in the brain is anything like the thing out there? How can you even know there's anything out there if all you know is in the brain, you see? So uh, Douglas Harding reinterprets this and says, well, you know, what you're talking about when you talk about light bouncing off an object and entering the eye is not, you know, you draw it on a piece of paper so it looks all at the same level, flat. But what you're actually talking about is what an observer records as they move towards you, you see, and the different changes going on. And when you are investigating the changes in the eye or in the brain, you are an observer at a certain distance recognising those changes. The brain is over there in the brain surgeon, like we were saying before, you know, uh, projects it back on you. And uh, so uh, if you think of this, you're you're this space and the brain surgeon's looking at you and they've got your brain. You've got, you've got your experience here and the uh, brain surgeon has got your brain over there. Now you need your brain. You need every level. You know, you don't just need your brain to see. Uh, you need the, the sunlight to see. You need the air to see you need the galaxy to see the whole whole system of regions is necessary for you to see Mm -hmm. but in the hierarchy there's two versions of the hierarchy the short one and the big one and in the short one he's in the he says well i see you you see here with what i have there my brain you see i see What is uh, here with what is there? I see what is given here in my space here with what is over there in you, my brain or my head. So in the short hierarchy, I see what is here with what is there. In the big hierarchy, he says, I see what is not there with what is not here. (laughs) Now, what that means is, you know, I see what is not. (laughs) Now, I've just confused myself here, but... Uh, with what is not here. My brain is there and, and the space is here. So anyway, uh, I've confused the listener, no doubt. But just to say that this is a very different way of understanding perception. 
and that perception involves both the observer and the observed and the reflection and projection of that. And it's a two-way process. Now, they're very different from this flat map of the light bouncing off and entering the eye and getting to the brain, you see. This is quite a different thing, yeah. So I see your head here, you see, uh, but it's really over there, you see. It's not, I see what is not there because your head is here with what is not here because my brain is over there. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. <laughs> the idea of seeing what is here with what is there, it's the idea that the organs and the bodily parts that are wrapped up with perception, they're part of what is out there with you yes, and not right. in here with me. Yes, that's right, exactly. It's pretty exactly. wacky. That's the Alice in Wonderland stuff, uh, but right? It's, yeah, but it's not wacky. It's true. It's down to earth. It's the other that is wacky, actually, when you think mm -hmm. about it, because it doesn't make sense. You know, it's, not, it, it, it's a useful way of thinking about things, but you can pick it apart straight away, because if what you're experiencing is actually in your brain, and all you can know is in your brain, so you can't know about anything else. You cancel it out. But if everything is given here in the nothingness, you see, and not in a brain, and your brain is out there like you see, along with everything else that you need, yeah. I, I, I just look forward to the day when philosophers and academics and scientists say, oh my God, th this works. Th this is true. This is, this is like Copernicus on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I probably won't live to see it, but I hope I do. I'm doing my best to launch, like a ship, this view of the universe, which is so alive and true and inspiring and beautiful. And, you know, Dante had his vision of the cosmos with the spheres. This has got its layers. This is not so different from how our four ancestors used to think of things, but it's verifiable scientifically, yeah. And I think the way that I would frame this, seeing what's here with what's there, because I do want to guide the listener through this, this idea. So the idea that the organs and brain and body parts that I see with are out there and not in here with me, that's to say that they're part of the third person perspective. They are part of the objective view of the universe. They're part of the frame independent world that exists outside of my perspective. From my perspective, I don't have these body parts because my perspective from here, that's the first person frame dependent view, doesn't have these things. They're out there in the third person world. So again, we're just getting our heads around the world as it is from the third person perspective compared to what it is from the first person perspective. That's right. And I don't have my brain here. Uh, if anything, I have yours here. <laughs> <laughs> Just as I don't have my head here, I have yours here. But I think you put that very, very well, very simply. Organi uh, the organs are out there in others and uh, uh, you need them. Like, you know, you, you need your body, you need your brain, you need your planet. But they're not central. Yeah. Well, I think this has been a wonderful discussion, a great introduction for my listeners to your work and very fascinating stuff for me. I was delighted to have your voice all to myself for an hour and a half. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, the listeners uh, do go to headless.org or we've got Headless Way app on iTunes and uh, Android wonderful. as well. Uh, so there are lots of things on our YouTube channel and we have regular free Zoom meetings of 
be friends uh, who are interested in this and want to kind of meet others. And if you're interested in that, you just email me through the website or wherever, and I will send you information on the free Zoom meetings. Yeah. And I really encourage the listeners to listen to some of these guided meditations, to listen to the Headless Way, to do the experiments. Uh, I think it's very insightful and there's a lot of joy to be found in listening to these sessions. Well, a real delight to meet you, Jeff. We haven't met before. I I feel a kindred spirit here and uh, great (laughs) to uh, hang out with you. I have two voices in one consciousness here and uh, a delight to meet someone who is also enjoying being headless and and exploring all its implications. That's wonderful. Yes. And the same to you. Okay. All the best. Until the next time. Thank you, Jeff. Yes. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Extrapolator is produced and edited by me, Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast. It's just me. And I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. And please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media on Facebook and on Instagram, at ExtrapolatorPod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time. Let's also bring on to the front burner, communicate, make conscious our true nature, that I'm in you and you're in me, that I am in this deep way responsible for you. Now, I'm not as well, but I am as well. And uh, let's balance that uh, unbalanced situation we're in at the moment where we're only focused on our separateness.